I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Mark 6. It's page 1480 in the church Bibles, and I want to read to you the first six verses of that chapter, Mark chapter 6. Let me pray as we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you we have life. Lord, that the sun has broken through the clouds. You've shown us your goodness. You've shown us your love. You've shown us your kindness. And Lord, we want to pray that the Spirit will breathe fresh grace upon us this morning. To see you more clearly. To believe in you more passionately and vigorously. To live lives that are the consequence of such faith. And Lord, we want to pray that you'll move near to those who are struggling. I want to pray, Father, for the work of the Spirit to come and show us your face in a new way. And to bring peace to the um, storm-wrecked heart and those who are on the edge and those who are in many ways uh, struggling or perhaps even turn their back on you. And help us, Lord, to appreciate afresh the wonder of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Let's read these first verses of what happened when Jesus went back to his hometown. He's been traveling around preaching uh, from place to place, visiting villages and towns and performing miracles and gathering great crowds and experiencing uh, something of the, the buoyancy of people's growing interest and fervor around who this preacher is and what he's doing. And then he goes home, and this is what happens. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. What you come across here in this story is something which actually, when you take a moment and pause and consider what's going on, this is deeply surprising and uh, and a little bit confusing at first, on first glance. Because everywhere Jesus has gone up to this point in Mark's gospel, he's encountered very little resistance. He's met with, with with. almost hysterical crowds of people interested in him. Of course, there's been some reactions to some of the things he said and done. But by and large, uh, he can barely escape the, the kind of clamoring interest of people as he goes from place to place. But up to this point in the Gospels, the only times he's really meeting with um, sort of a, a prejudicial disinterest in him seems to be when he's in his hometown or with his own family. Earlier in chapter 3, his family think he's gone a bit crazy um, because they've just known him as Jesus their whole life. And then suddenly, what's he up to? What's he doing? Why is he, why is he going around preaching and doing all these miracles? And his family, actually, those the first to kind of begin to react to them. And then we see the same thing happening when he goes back to Nazareth here. 
And it's among his own people that he encounters this resistance and this, this negativity around who he is and what he's teaching. And I, I, want to, I want to explore that with you because I think this is actually a very common and, and, and typical phenomenon. And I, I want to speak to a particular group of people today, which I'm hoping will be helpful for some of you. I, this phenomenon is the fact that there are certain folk who, as was the case with this family, as was the case with his own village, this Nazareth, Nazareth was a small town, about 500 people or so. Those who are most sort of up close and familiar with Jesus are those who, it seems, are least likely at this stage to be able to make the transition to see him as something extraordinary and wonderful and someone who could change their lives. And now this is something that actually you can observe time and time again at every level. You think about how there's been in the history of our nation great stories of extraordinary revivals where God's spirit has, has awoken entire towns, villages, and, and churches have been radically filled with new believers in Jesus. You think about the, the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the last century. Uh, there was a revival in Wales when tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Welsh people began to flood the churches. Churches were built all over the place. You go and visit Wales now and you can see all these buildings all over the place as, as, as God's Spirit began to awaken an entire nation and the churches were filled. But what then happened was that within a generation, those same church buildings became the dead carcasses of, of the yesteryear as people began to empty uh, those churches. And they, the second generation or the third generation began to turn their back on faith. And you can see this pattern often being played out. We see it in churches. Often churches can grow in extraordinary ways as God does a special move among a people. And there's fervor and there's prayerfulness and there's joy and there's passion and there's love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But whether or not that love for the Lord is sustained in the next generation is always an open question. I've been in and around churches my entire life. And I've had the experience and the sadness of seeing how very often it's those people who've grown up within the context of the church who, for whatever reason, begin to doubt whether any of it was real and to walk away from it. In other words, those who are most familiar with Jesus and his teachings and his ways sometimes are those who cannot make the connection in their heart to see that this thing is true and they begin to be drawn to other things and they walk away. And you can, that may be true for your experience as well. And what I'm interested in is the fact, I'm, I want to talk about this, the reality of doubt. Obviously, the Christian faith is built on the persuasion that this thing is true. It's built on the conviction of faith, what faith is deep in your gut, where you know for a certainty that these things which are invisible to the eye are true, that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent from the Father, did die for our sins, was raised from the dead, will return one day. And faith is, of course, the, the essence of, Christian, of what it means to be a Christian, but doubt is its opposite, or it can lead to its opposite anyway. It leads to unbelief. And I'm interested in this phenomenon of doubt because that's what we encounter, what Jesus encountered here in his hometown among those people who actually knew him well. 
And so I'm interested in a particular type of doubt. It's not so much the doubt of the outsider looking in. The doubt of the skeptic or the seeker. Because often that particular doubt takes the, the characteristic of being an intellectual quest. Of wanting to understand the pieces of this faith and put it together and understand whether it's coherent, whether it makes sense in the light of reality and lived experience and all those kinds of things. But rather the doubt of the insider who begins to to question whether the things that they've been taught and heard their entire life is true at all. And it takes a different characteristic. Often that kind of doubt is less intellectual and more intuitive. It's more of a gut feeling or a rising sense of uncertainty. It's often rooted in um, an anxiety around experience, whether you have or haven't felt the power of God in your life, whether he has or hasn't captivated your life at a felt level. And I'm interested in that kind of doubt. And that's what I want to explore today, because I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus was encountering on this day when he was in his hometown among his own people. What I want to do is, first of all, uncover with you what I think are the causes of doubt before we go on to think about the dangers of doubt and then the cures. And uh, let's begin here then with the causes of doubt. What are the causes of doubt? Why is it that those, these people didn't believe? And what is it that we might see among us, and in fact do see even in our own church among people who begin to doubt and question their own faith? Now, it may be the case, by the way, a lot of you are not in that place at all. Praise God. But you definitely know someone who is. You definitely know someone who is. You might be sat next to them. They may be in your life group. They may be a close friend. I believe that as a church, we're, we're called to, to wrestle with this reality. To help one another with this reality. As a pastor, there is, I think there are a few things that sadden you more than seeing the journey of the doubter who, who walks away. And that, that sadness ought to grip us all, shouldn't it? It ought to interest us and, and exercise us and call us to pray. I want us to think then, first of all, about the causes of doubt. Where does this come from? Now, Jesus puts his finger on it in one pithy saying here in verse 4, when he says of those people who were his people, his, his town, his kin. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, Jesus wasn't, this wasn't a saying that he invented. This was a common saying which he is using in his own situation. And I think there's a modern English equivalent that we use, and this is the great explainer that I want to kind of dig into, as I, as I understand it, as one being one of the root causes of doubt for those people who are within the church. And it's this phrase that familiarity can breed contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And you can see and feel that here in the passage. As... The initial amazement, who is this man? Why, where did he get these teaching? How is he doing these works? That initial amazement quickly transitions into something like contempt among, among the, the people from Nazareth. They begin to say things like this. They say, is not this the carpenter? Now, I, I, the commentators will tell you that 
Back in their day, it wasn't the case that they so much had the dichotomy between blue collar and white collar, between manual laborers and intellectuals. And so they would not necessarily have immediately jumped to the conclusion that someone who was a builder, as Jesus was, uh, could not also be a, a teacher. But you can certainly see how they can't understand the transition this man has made. Raised as he was by Joseph, trained in the building trade, and then at the age of 30, switching to becoming a rabbi. They look at him as a kind of jumped-up pretender. Who is this carpenter, they say? It gets worse. They call him a bastard. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, it's very rare to be referred to by your mother's name in those days. So what are they doing? Of course, his own people, the people from his town, they know. They know that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. They know that Joseph and Mary were not married when she was pregnant with him. And perhaps that stigma has attached itself to Jesus their whole life. So they call him a bastard. And they go on and say, isn't, isn't he uh, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters here with us? In other words, if you can boil it down, I think this is what they're saying. They're saying that he is too normal, too lowly, too ordinary. He's just like us. There's no way in which he could be anything special, extraordinary, or have any kind of power that could change our lives or bring the kind of deliverance that we're hoping for as a people. Now, I think that's something... I think. That, that pattern is almost exactly repeated in the lives of a lot of Christians, especially those who've been familiar with these things their whole lives. That the doubts begin to arise from what you feel is the sheer ordinariness of the Christian faith. That there's nothing surprising. It's all too familiar, too normal, too unsurprising to be profound or to be powerful to demand everything of you. And let me try and explain that in a few ways. Why does it happen? Why does familiarity breed contempt? Why is it that Jesus said a prophet isn't without honor except in his hometown, among his own people? And why is that something that you need to be conscious of, lest in your heart you don't treasure the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought? Let me give you a few suggestions. I think familiarity can lead to boredom is one. What I mean there is that Boredom is is essentially the loss of wonder, isn't it? You need wonder in life. And I think a lot of our lives are about the pursuit of wonder, the longing for, the desire for wonder. But if 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 your spiritual life lacks wonder, if it's characterized by boredom, you're often in great danger. Now, isn't it the case that we... When you grow up with something, especially if you grow up with something, and I'm, as I said, I want to speak particularly to those who would think of themselves as insiders from within the Christian faith. If you grow up with something, you can miss the wonder of the thing. You know, I grew up in, in a beautiful, beautiful part of the country in a city called Winchester in the south of England. And we had cause to visit there just a few weeks ago. And I did that. I was just with C, she was doing her graduation ceremony as a GP, and I did that thing where I just felt like I had to drag her from place to place, all the places where I'd lived in my childhood, and took her to outside my primary school. It's out on just on the edge of town in a beautiful meadow, surrounded by fields with a little Anglican church that's been there for about 700 years. 
And uh, as I walked in there, I was struck with the beauty of the place and began to regale see with how wonderful. Well, I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid, but I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. Look at this place. And she stood there just applying hand cream and <laughs> glazing over as she listens to me talk about it. And I was like, wow, this place even smells incredible. And she began to laugh because I could smell her hand cream. I thought it was, you know, I had no idea what I was talking about. But you see, as a kid, there was no wonder. And suddenly there's wonder because I see it almost as an outsider looking in now, though I'd never seen it that way growing up there. You think about at the moment down in, in parts of India, they're experiencing terrible drought. And um, people have to travel a long way with, with empty empty canisters to go and wait for the government to fill up wells in order to get water. And there's a, there's a bit of a kerfuffle to try and be at the front to grab water before it all runs out. And yet every day we wake up to taps that run with clear, sparkling, beautiful Thames water. It's the company. It's not actually from the Thames. It's, what, it's the company, unfortunately, named. And, um, but it, it is clean. It's, you know, we, we all have a freshwater spring in our home and yet, when was the last time that you experienced something of a wonder about that reality, right? And this is true. Sometimes familiarity leads to boredom. Christianity is full of wonder. It's full of wonder. The greatness of God, his love for us, and his grace to us, though we're sinners, in giving the gift of it, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his willingness to take upon himself the sins that we have done in life and bear the punishment. This is wonderful truth, yet for so many, it only elicits boredom. Familiarity can lead to boredom. Another thing familiarity does is it can lead to comparison, where you begin to think that surely, surely the, the real thing, the amazing thing, the wonderful thing, the powerful thing is something over there, something that I haven't experienced. The thing I know about is, you know, meh. And so boredom kind of leads to the longing for novelty, the desire for the new. Now, that's not always a bad thing. My wife and I, in a week's time, will be celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary um, next Sunday. And uh, it's, our, it's our custom uh, of recent years. Is to, we're working our way through the alphabet in terms of cuisine. So we started with A for Argentinian, uh, B for British, great food, um, C for seafood, and um, <laughs> we were on the Isle of Wight. There were not many options. And... Um, we're on D now, and we're a little bit, we're a bit stuck, to be honest. There's Djibouti and uh, Denmark, and not, there's not many options in London. But anyway, the, the longing to try new things is not in and of itself a bad thing, right? But sometimes the yearning for novelty can be something profoundly dangerous. You think about the husband who, um, who becomes, becomes bored with his own marital situation, begins to design novelty. How many relationships, married or unmarried, break up because of that yearning? The comparison with, oh, that, that looks like a much more interesting, engaging, exciting situation over there. Or that person. Or, and then that can breeds discontent and then destruction to what you actually have in, in front of you. And the same phenomenon happens within people's faith. Familiarity breeds this contempt that leads to comparison. Well, and we saw this at a great scale across our whole nation as the middle of the 20th century, what was a nation of churchgoers began to turn their backs on the church, right, in the 1950s. 
Then we went into the 1960s, and what, what begins to emerge is a new interest in the novel, whether it's sexual uh, discovery and exploration, or also a, a, a real interest in Eastern religions. And you have, you've probably seen the pictures of George Harrison from the Beatles sat playing a sitar and meditating with Indian gurus and things like this. You think, what is that about? Why? And all it is is that the familiarity with the Christian scene in which they'd grown up meant that there was nothing exciting about it. It was too familiar to, be, to have anything meaningful to say to that generation. So people began to yearn for the novel and the new and the things outside there, which, of course, may be something you've experienced and felt in your own heart. Familiarity leads to comparison. It also leads to presumption. What I mean by that is that you can think, when you're overly familiar with something, you can begin to think that you know everything about it. And uh, the community around Jesus, this is what's going on. They think they know all about this man, the carpenter, Mary's son, related to all these people who still live in our village. They think they know him. And so they dismiss the idea that there could be anything new in him that could change their lives. And actually, a lot of people grow up in church with that same feeling. You've heard the gospel a million times. You've heard sections of the Bible read to you. Maybe you've read it somewhat yourself. You know the stories. And so familiarity leads to a kind of a presumption. I know this already. There's nothing in here that's new, and I'm not going to get what I'm longing for in this. And so I just want to push back on that a bit. Say, well, maybe you never really felt the depths of your sin in the first place. And maybe you never really felt the wonder of the forgiveness that God offers. Maybe, in other words, the Christianity which you're turning your back on, if indeed you're tempted to do so, was never the real thing. It was a weakened version of it. A truncated and amputated version. You think about how inoculation works. Inoculation is you take a a weakened strain of a bacteria or virus. Your body will develop an immunity to it while the thing has no real danger to you. And of course, a lot of people, that's exactly what their experience of the Christian faith has been. They've known enough Christianity to just develop a resistance to it. So that even if the real thing comes up and slaps them in the face, there's no... There's no real reaction to that. Familiarity breeds contempt. A prophet is not without honor, Jesus says, except in his hometown and among his own people, in his own family. And how often is that the case? That those most familiar are sometimes those who will walk away, those who will doubt. Let's think of then about the dangers of doubt. Why is doubt such a dangerous place to exist in or to live in? I don't think doubt is such a bad place to visit now and then. You think about what a life-changing experience it might be to be one of those well, increasing, increasingly common people who get to climb up Mount Everest. Apparently there's a queue to get to the top these days. But I still think it would be a life-changing experience. It changes your perspective on life, on the world, on all kinds of things. And, and yet, it's not a good place to stay there. Because when you get above a certain altitude, you become hypoxic. There is not enough oxygen in your bloodstream to feed your brain, and your brain is dying. 
And I think doubt is a little bit like that. It's not a bad place to visit now and then, but to remain there is a dangerous place for any person, any Christian. I want to ask the question, why is it dangerous? Why is doubt dangerous? And the answer is not because it's wrong to ask questions. The Christian faith is not like living in one of these dictator states where to ask questions is a dangerous thing and you get your name on a blacklist. In fact, I often think that people who doubt the most in the Christian faith are the people who haven't really asked the questions enough in the past to have explored the the answers. Suddenly they're knocked sideways by some new life experience or some new opportunity or some new desire and they don't have the resources to deal with the situation they're in because they never doubted their faith before. Not in a serious way, not in a way which enabled them to ask the right questions and build in the right foundations. The danger of doubt is not the problem of asking questions. You have questions, that's a wonderful thing. The danger of doubt is rather this. I think the danger of doubt is that it can become self-fulfilling. And here's what I mean. Look what happens in this story. When, when they, it says they took offense at him, and then it says Jesus, he said to them that the prophet's not without honor, etc. And he said he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. In other words, when the culture and the climate of doubt creeped into his hometown, and everybody's talking about Jesus, and they're all a little bit... They're all a little bit angry and frustrated and annoyed and offended by him. Jesus has, there's nothing he can do there. He has to leave. And in a sense, their doubt, therefore, becomes a self-fulfilling reality. And I want to explain to you how that works. This over-familiarity and doubt can often cause the person who's the insider to lose their sense of objectivity about the truthfulness of the Christian faith. You don't have an objective perspective on the thing. You're not the outsider looking in, looking at the whole picture. You're the insider, frustrated, questioning, feeling squashed, desiring, yearning for the freedom that's outside. And what then happens is you begin to want it to be wrong. That the doubt gives way to a kind of an insidious desire which grows up inside you where you're looking for the reasons for this thing to be wrong or to be false. And so you want to burst out into something new. And what, the way you can see that happening here, this word, they use the word, interesting word here. It says that at the end of verse 3, when it says they took offense at him. This word offense literally can be translated that they, they had a stumbling block in their heart against him. They're suddenly, unlike the, the crowds of people in the region who'd been open-eyed and full of wonder at who this Jesus was, these people cannot perceive who Jesus is because they have a stumbling block in their vision. And often that's the case, that the person who's, who's allowed doubt to creep up as an insider begins to experience the reality of a great offense, a great stumbling block, which prevents you from actually looking at this thing objectively. For some, let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. For some people, the stumbling block is an emotional, experiential stumbling block. You say, 
I just don't feel Christianity to be true. I don't feel that I've experienced God in the way that I should. And so that great lack of experience or lack of encounter becomes your stumbling block so that every other reason to believe Christianity is dismissed but for this one great problem, an emotional experiential problem. For some it's, you can think of it like this, you hear the stories of other people's testimonies, you think, well, that's wonderful for them, that's not what I've experienced. And so you begin actually to heap scorn on other people out of your frustration born out of your own lack of encounter with the goodness of God through the gospel. For some of you, you you come to church and you witness people around you worshipping freely, belting the songs out from the bottom of their lungs, hands raised high, passionate worship, and you actually begin to feel what they're doing is fake because of your emotional, experiential disconnect. It's not like you can worship God because you're not even thinking about God in that moment. You're just thinking about all these people around you apparently have an experience you're not having. For some of you, you read the Bible and it just leaves you cold. And what we're talking about here is that at the heart, you, what develops is a great big stumbling block. You can't look at the thing clearly because all you can think about is your inability to connect with God. And so this grows up into something which actually becomes the very reason for which you, you, you walk away. For some, the stumbling block is a moral one. You know, we're in the middle of Pride Month at the moment. And how, how challenging it is for Christians to understand their posture on particular moral and ethical issues where we clash with the culture that we're in, where we have a different perspective. And if you've grown up in the Christian church, sometimes you're the person most likely actually to feel a problem with what Christians teach. And so it becomes this great big stumbling block in your view. No matter what else Christianity teaches, because of this one thing, you can't see past it. And you begin to want Christianity to be wrong for the simple reason that this is your issue. Another moral thing is, you know, you think about temptations and desires and yearnings that you can't find fulfillment for within the context of your faith in your church and your church family. You know, one of the most common moral stumbling blocks that we come across for people who become doubters and then walk away from their faith, I'd say nine times out of ten is connected with the yearning for fulfillment sexually and romantically. So a lot of people, their overriding desire to have satisfaction in that part of your life becomes the one great stumbling block. Because you can't abide by the Christian teachings on these things until you begin to look elsewhere. You start dating a non-Christian or enjoying you know, hookups or whatever it is. This moral stumbling block, actually, again, it begins to force you to want the Christian faith to be wrong because then it gives you a reason to do the thing you want to do. For some people, the whole thing is an intellectual stumbling block. You took offense at Jesus, or have a stumbling block against Jesus because, let's say you catalog all the unanswered prayers. You think, well, what reality is there to this faith if this prayer wasn't answered and God didn't do anything about this and I asked him for that and nothing happened? Or maybe you're exposed to um, 
you know, this is often the case for those people who come fresh into the city and go to university and study subjects, and then suddenly they're exposed to ideas and teaching that blows their mind. Maybe going to science lectures and, and, and feeling the scorn that's implicit against religion because so often the dichotomy is set up, isn't it, between science and religion. And that begins to sow seeds in your heart that becomes a great big stumbling block. You think, well, how could I believe this fantastical idea about a God who created the world when these people who are so clever around me clearly don't believe in In fact, they're pouring scorn on it, and then it becomes your stumbling block. And you can't really look at the thing objectively anymore because you just feel the ridicule of being a Christian in a scientific age. Now, I'm just trying to give you different examples, and it may be the case that I haven't touched on anything that's relevant to, to you if you're a doubter. But just like these people in his hometown, this, what begins to happen is that you can develop this great big stumbling block which actually makes it impossible for you to be open to the realities of God and the realities of Christ because all you can think about is this thing. In a sense, as I said to you, the reason why that's such a dangerous place to be, the reason why that's such a hypoxic environment is because you become less objective than the seeker outside looking in. Because you have this great reason to want it to be wrong. I think this is partly why in Hebrews chapter 6, when he's talking about the reality of people who've experienced the things of God, and who've, who've been in the church, and, and then they begin to flirt with doubt or to walk away, he says they're in the most dangerous position of all. Listen to these sobering words in Hebrews 6. He says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. In other words, you, at some point in your life you experience that, wow, the gospel's amazing. Who've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. There's been encounters with God. There's been moments where you've, you've cried or laughed or enjoyed God. or you know, Maybe it was years ago, but you've tasted that. He says, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. There's been times when you've read the Bible, when you've heard preaching, and it's cut to the heart, and you've felt the wonder of this thing. He says it's impossible for the people who've experienced this, and he says, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I think in a way, what he's saying is that the person who's most likely to become unobjective about Christianity, least likely to be able to look at this thing clearly, is the person who's been inside, developed this great stumbling block, and then walked away. This is the danger of doubt. I want to think with you lastly about the cures for doubt. Now, before I get into this, I just need to say, look... One thing that strikes you from this passage, when Jesus is encountering this doubt and unbelief among his people, is that he is not remotely insecure. I think often when you're in a position of doubt, you can have an entitled mindset where you say, God, it's your job to prove yourself to me, or else I'm walking away. And how interesting that Jesus is not in any way moved in that direction. He's not like the insecure boyfriend or girlfriend who'll text you through the day and the night to just desperately try and win you back. It's not like he's running around, you know, going, bam, look, water into wine. 
or you know, raising the dead and doing all kinds of extraordinary things just to desperately win them back. He's, there's a calmness and a confidence about him. And listen, that's true of the Bible generally. The Bible doesn't try and make a case for God. The Bible just tells you God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first line of Scripture. There's no argument there. There's no effort to persuade. It's a statement of fact presented to you. And you can believe it or not. And there's a sense in which Jesus conducts himself in that way. He never tries to persuade the crowds. You read the Gospels for yourself. You'll not see it. There's a security in him. And the reason I'm stressing that is because I want you to understand that when you experience doubt, there's a sense in which the onus is on you. You can't sit back, fold your arms, and have that entitled demand on the God above you and say, God, it's your job to prove yourself to me. Having said that, the Bible also shows us how gracious the Father is in moving towards the doubter. A little bit later in Mark's Gospel, we'll come across a story where Jesus meets a man whose son is afflicted. And there's a question of whether Christ will heal him or not. And the Father cries out with this this very memorable line. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus moves into that situation and deals with the situation. I believe, I've got a shred of faith in you. Help this cavernous unbelief which I'm wrestling with in my heart. All through the, the Gospels, you'll see that the disciples themselves have moments of doubt, of misunderstanding, of lack of appreciation for who the Lord Jesus Christ is in his fullness. They, have, they become afraid at moments, which is the, the truest expression of doubt, isn't it? And God is gracious to us, even in our doubt. Let me offer you a few words of advice to those who may be dealing with doubt. In a sense, I just want to say to you that I'm telling there's a sense in which you need to relax. You need to be patient. Doubt is never a reason to knee-jerk or to make stupid decisions that you'll regret. But let me tell you a few words of advice. Here's the first. I think doubt calls for humility. You have to humble yourself. The reason why I stress that is because I think pride can become the great barrier to being able to look at this thing rightly. You remember the last time that you were caught up in an argument with a friend or a family member usually actually where you were no longer really arguing about the thing and maybe you even saw that you were in the wrong but the issue then becomes your pride, your inability to overcome your pride is the problem for being able to concede that they were right and you were wrong. And I think there's a sense in which Doubt can very quickly be accompanied by pride, and it's pride that makes the thing toxic and not healthy. A healthy kind of doubt asks the right questions and does so in the right heart, and so discovers the true answers. But the toxic kind of doubt is a doubt that's infected by pride. In the villagers, that was true of them. Because look, Jesus made them look stupid. 
They'd been around him for 30 years and not realized there was something extraordinary about this man. He made them look stupid. And the great problem they could not overcome in that moment was their pride. They couldn't look at him objectively. They couldn't calmly assess the truthfulness of what he was claiming to be. It may be true for you as well. You've grown up in and around this thing. You ought to know more is what you tell yourself. So when you begin to experience doubt, maybe you even hide it away. You can't confess it to another. You can't own up to it. You can't talk about it openly. And I think humility is the first step. Firstly, a humility before God, where you can say, God, I'm struggling. I'm in danger. You can say, I'm barely hanging on, Lord. I, I, listen, go read the Psalms. Half of them begin that way. I'm barely hanging on, God. That's how we should be praying when you're struggling. The first thing you need then is a humility. Firstly before God, also then before friends and other people in the church. To open your life up to them. To open your thinking up to them. To open up your desires to them. And say, look, this is the reason why I'm struggling. And I'm not hiding anything now. And these are the questions I have. Let me offer you another suggestion. I think that when you're experiencing a season of doubt, there's a sense in which you need, I want to suggest that you need to engage your mind in a fresh way. Now, this might surprise you because I think a lot of times, particularly people who've grown up in and around church, the problem that they think is not their thinking, it's their experience. You think, well, if I just encounter God in some fresh way, I'd be okay. I'd be on new level ground. But I, I think that's the wrong way to look at this whole thing. The Christian faith is either true or it is not true. And the word faith itself is, can be translated persuasion. To believe this thing is to be persuaded that it is true. And the reason why I feel like I have to stress that is because I often feel like when, we, when we're talking with and helping people who are struggling with doubt, They're not engaging at the level of their mind. It's all gut level, intuitive, desire level. And the mind was switched off and left behind sometime. Or maybe there are some kind of intellectual questions coming up, but they're more of a smokescreen for the real deep gut level desires, which are the real problem. And what I want to suggest is that I think you have to, when you're going through seasons of doubt, I I think you have to act like the kind of the ideal skeptic. The skeptic who, who is looking at this thing with the posture of wanting to, de- desiring to know if it's true or not. To research it like you never knew any of it. You don't act like these villagers who shut down their hearts before they shut down their minds and so made it impossible for them to listen to Jesus. But rather re-engage your mind. I think the test for whether you can walk away from this, is not just that you have doubts about whether it's true, but you have to know it's not true. You have to know with a certainty that Jesus did not rise from the dead because if he did, it changes everything. The Christian faith, I think uniquely among the world faiths, is intellectually robust. It can withstand 
your deepest, most intrusive questions. It can withstand your probing. I want to offer a last suggestion for the doubter. I suggest that you need to seek God like never before. And what I mean is this. The faith that enables you to lean into God and be at peace in your faith and live the obedient life that is always the consequence of a true and soundly built faith in Jesus, that faith is a gift from God. It can't be conjured up. You can't work yourself into it. As much as it requires you to engage your mind, ultimately it takes a move of God to clear away the clouds and show himself to you in a fresh way. But the Bible shows us that God delights to show himself to people. The verses in Jeremiah 29, where it says, You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You could think of that negatively. You know, when a person's half-hearted and lazy about their desire to know whether this thing is true or not, wrestling with their doubts in that manner. I'm not sure God can help that person or will. But he says, when you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. It's a promise of scripture, unwavering and steadfast. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you, he says. There's another verse in uh, James 4. Let me just read to you a few verses here because I think they... They resonate with what I'm trying to say. James says, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the promise I want you to hear. If you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, if you're uncertain of the faith that you have, he says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he'll exalt you. The reason why I wanted to read all those verses is because I'm trying to stress for you, friends, that God is available to the seeker. But there's a sense in which he's not available to the half-hearted And rebellious seeker, the person who is willfully walking in a direction which they know displeases God, and yet at the same time entertaining these intellectual doubts as a kind of a posture before him. He says, you need to deal with me like I'm the holy living God that I am. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Turn away from your sin and seek me and I'll be there with you. That sounds intense, doesn't it? It is intense. But whoever said that spiritual realities and the spiritual journey should be something that is easy? Don't we live in the instant culture where everything we expect to be offered up to us at a few clicks on Amazon Prime? It seems to me when I've read and heard about the lives of saints through history, there's been a willingness to engage with God in the way that he demands of us. To understand that you're not dealing with casual, 
or tame realities here, but with the reality of a holy God in your presence. I want us to pray. Reality is that at any given moment in our church's life, there is a percentage of our church which is wrestling with this problem, this struggle, this battle of the heart. We need God, don't we, to help us. We need Him to help us know Him, love Him with our whole hearts, believe in Him, and believe His Word. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank You that You are not threatened by our questions. Lord, we know that we have as humans an endless capacity for irrationality. For finding reasons to justify our decisions and our course of actions. I want to pray, Father, for the person here who's, who's wrestling with a great stumbling block. Who has a great stumbling block in front of their eyes that makes it impossible to believe in you makes it impossible to surrender to you as they know they ought. And I ask you, Lord, that you will have mercy in that situation to draw near. I pray that as a church family, we'd be better better at handling doubts individually and also within friends, brothers and sisters. That we'd have a culture in which we can talk about spiritual realities and the questions we have without fear of judgment. But Lord, most of all, we ask that the Spirit of God will move toward us to clear away the cobwebs, to clear away the cloudy thinking and enable us to see you again. Recapture our wonder. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.